0: Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Hayman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Hayman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe.
1: And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on November 10, 2020, honoring the work of Eleni Sentim Zaleka an assistant professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. Professor Zaleka studies political and social theory from a comparative perspective, with a particular focus on politics in the Horn of Africa. Her 2019 book, Ethiopia in Theory, Revolution and Knowledge Production 1964 to 2016 studies Ethiopian history from the 1960s to the present in order to understand the role of social scientific knowledge in African politics. The
0: 1974 revolution in Ethiopia replaced the emperor Haile Selassie with a government known as the Derg regime, supported by the Soviet Union. Ethiopia in theory focuses on the Ethiopian student movement in the decade before the revolution and the writings on social theory that this movement produced. Professor Zaleka studies the social scientific categories that the student movement used to make sense of Ethiopian politics and economics, and to imagine revolutionary change, in order to understand the influence of this movement on later Ethiopian politics, and the limitations of its revolutionary goals. By using the 1960s student movement as a case study, Professor Zaleka argues that social theory is always a part of social practice, rather than a source of universal knowledge.
1: First, we will hear Professor Zaleka talk about some of the political questions that motivate her research and how Ethiopia, in theory, fits into that research. She also describes how her thinking about political questions evolved in response to the U.S. elections and the military conflict between the Ethiopian government and the state of Tigray, both events that happened shortly before her November 10th presentation. Afterward, we will hear a response from Anupama Rao, an associate professor of history at Barnard College.
2: Thank you to everybody for showing up today um, and being a part of this conversation. It's a pleasure and an honor to be in conversation with you. Um, When I set the date for this uh, conversation, I had forgotten about the American elections and I did not anticipate that we would all be emotionally exhausted from, you know, constantly refreshing our browsers, trying to figure out who had actually um, been elected and what the results of the elections would be. The other thing that I did not anticipate was that on the night of the American elections, the Ethiopian government would launch a series of Uh, military actions against the regional government in Tigray, um, which is Ethiopia's uh, most northern state. And yet, despite not anticipating these things, here we are. So um, I guess there's something perhaps um, productive about thinking about um, democratic legitimacy. And as these two places, Ethiopia and the U.S., are sort of experiencing a crisis um, in democratic legitimacy. Um, I guess there's something productive about being in the richest country in the world, the U.S., and thinking about one of the poorest countries in the world and where um, democratic legitimacy, um, I suppose, um, lies in both of you know what what is the what is democratic legitimacy in these in these two spaces? Certainly, the coincidence of both events. Um, has forced me to reflect on the nature of political settlements. And um, in particular, more than ever, I've become interested in better understanding the relationship between inequality, authoritarianism, and democracy. So what do I mean when I say that? I suppose on some levels, I'm interested in the authoritarianism of the factory floor and the ways in which surplus value is extracted from laboring bodies. But I'm also interested in the ways in which we could think about the lack of access to healthcare or the lack of access to basic education as a form of authoritarianism as well. And yet I think for the most part uh, that form of authoritarianism remains invisible and unspoken when we speak of democratic settlements or political settlements. Um, Instead, that form of authoritarianism is theorized as personal, um, something that concerns individuals, families, or perhaps charity groups. So the simultaneity of the debacle of the U.S. elections with this impending civil war in Ethiopia has also brought to the fore the ways in which my book exists as a kind of artifact. And depending on who I'm talking to, this book as artifact changes its meaning, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, it's been out for a while now and I've, I've had really different types of conversations about the book. And I think its meaning changes according to what's happening in the rest of the world. So thinking about the book today is really different than how I thought about it two weeks ago. And now it seems to me that the book is in some ways a meditation on the ways in which different political actors have addressed the ordinary and everyday malaise of authoritarianism as it is experienced by various groups and individuals in Ethiopia. So one topic that my book is particularly interested in is thinking about the ways in which liberal democracies have assumed a separation between economic life and political life and extra economic policymaking is as such often seen as the hallmark of authoritarian regimes while the direct and immediate economic coercion that is experienced at an individual level is seen as something again that is personal or is about a relationship between two people you know who are making and breaking contracts as it suits their self-maximizing inclinations So economic inequality in this framework is then explained as the fault of the individual or perhaps it's the fault of the fact that there are political fetters that block the individual from expressing their natural tendency to truck, barter and exchange. Here what I'm saying is that there's often an assumption that extra economic coercion is a sign of authoritarianism when extra economic coercion might be exactly what's needed to promote substantive equality and substantive justice. What then is the proper link between the political and the economic? How does one democratize the workplace or access to healthcare or access to education? One of the arguments that my book addresses is that in a place like Ethiopia, bourgeois looking institutions often deny the ways in which social differences are rooted in the ways in which indigeneity, ethnicity, land and economics have been historically connected and reproduced for the sake of both colonialism and capitalism. And so part of my book, part of what I argue in the book is that bourgeois seeming institutions instead of acting as neutral peacemakers often reproduce a form of power that draws out these differences that I've just mentioned. So that formal democratic institutions often become anti-democratic machines. But if this makes liberal democracy a particularly unsustainable practice in a place like Ethiopia, certainly one of the questions I asked myself this week is if liberal democracy was even sustainable in a place like the US what happens to liberal democracies when they are repeatedly unable to substantively address historical injustices. Thinking about the US and Ethiopia this week also helped me focus on the way that my book is also a consideration of the various political experiments in the Horn of Africa that have attempted to name historical injustices. My book also asks what kind of political collectivity Needs to be forged in order to address historical injustices, and what criteria do we use to, ex- to assess those political projects that attempt to address these historical injustices? So I think you know my colleague in my department, um, Misas Mahmoud Mamdani, he has a theory of the African state, and one of the things that he proposes is that the African state is constantly pull, um, pulled by two polarizing tendencies. On the one hand it flip-flops between a kind of decentralized despotism whereby power is vested in local authorities and the customary or power is vested in a modernizing authority keyed on centralizing the state through a unitary vision of the nation state. So Mamdani blames this flip-flopping tendency on the legacy of indirect rule that's been inherited from colonialism and he he, he makes a theory about the African state generally and he asks why, why is it that African anti-colonial social movements have been unable to transcend this binary, right, this, this binary, the customary on the one hand and this modernizing authority. So one of the things I think that's interesting about Mamdani is that he rejects political economy as a form of knowledge production that's relevant to theorizing the African state. Mostly because for him, political economy has been unable historically to think past the dichotomy between the modern and the customary, the tribal and the universal. Mamdani says that at the very least in his work, when he links the language of civil society the language of democracy and the language of the customary back to indirect rule he's able to at least you know produce a framework that transcends these dichotomies in theoretical terms so one of the things that i do in my book is that i suggest that indirect rule is not the only culprit that allows the african state to keep on reproducing these dichotomies Rather, we need to think about capitalism as a form of life that produces categories of analysis and modes of interpreting the world that are specific to Africa, but are also part of the story of how capitalism universalizes itself within the brown and black world. Since since 1884, since the scramble for Africa, certain questions in the Horn of Africa remain unresolved such as how to mediate the relationship of the of provincial rules to a central state, how to mediate relations between local traders and international markets, or how to incorporate different language groups into one political authority. So the, I think the creativity of my research practice is that I, simu- I simultaneously try to think form and content together. That is, I try to specify the ways in which capitalism is a form of life in Africa. And I argue that only situated and embodied knowledge production can provide the grounds for critiquing the the dichotomies at the heart of the African state, as well as the dichotomies at the heart of the social theory that has tried to describe the African state. So let me end by saying that in my book, I also think form and content together by first discussing the writers, uh, the writings, sorry, of the leaders of the Ethiopian student movement in the 1960s and 1970s. And I try to show how those conversations among those student leaders have actually provided the terms for all of the political settlements in Ethiopia since the 1974 revolution. And through a process of imminent critique, then I show that there was a certain futility in pursuing revolutionary ends within a social scientific program. So, but what part of what I'm also trying to show is that neither cultural traditions nor revolutionary concepts should be treated as fixed abstractions or transhistorical ideals. And instead, I try to link concepts and traditions back to their genesis in social practice. So I think that's a good summary of what I'm up to. And I think it's a sideways commentary on sort of where we're at um, today, politically in, in the region, in Ethiopia, but also in the world more, I guess, more broadly.
1: Next, we hear from Anupama Rao, an associate professor of history at Barnard College and a faculty member in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia. Professor Rao studies the colonial history of South Asia and has written about gender, sexuality, caste, race, and humanitarianism.
0: Professor Rao discusses Professor Zaleka's use of South Asian post-colonial theory in her book, and asks her about the comparative nature of the book's critique of the social sciences. Afterward, we will hear Professor Zaleka expand on this aspect of her book in response to Professor Rao's questions.
3: I'm uh, not an Africanist, though I uh, do know something about that field, and I really want to begin by congratulating some for this densely argued and wonderful book, which reminds us of the contested legacies of revolution as event and aspiration, but also it's complex temporalities. And I think very much as as, uh, Mamadou was saying, uh, this is is a book that thinks um, away or against the kind of predilection, at least uh, as far as I'm concerned, of a kind of social historical focus that tends to dominate the writing of Africa, uh, African society and culture and so forth. And this introduces the question of what it means to think about social theory, a social theory that actually thinks uh, about the possibilities that are thrown up by this specific case of Ethiopia. So the book runs along two parallel tracks. There's the investment of the researcher, as we've heard, the fact that she is haunted by the ongoing presence of the revolution in the elaboration of her own political being. And then there's her own interest in how the Ethiopian Revolution, 74, becomes an object of social scientific knowledge. The book is also uh, divided into two parts. The first, I think, somewhat disambiguated from the second section, which is called Theory as Memoir, which addresses debates in postcolonial theory about the relationship of capital and culture, of social difference and inequality, and I'm going to end my own comments by touching on that section because there is uh, quite a deep and serious engagement with South Asia and South Asian postcolonial theory in that second part of the book. Now Sontim's aim is to show how the student uprisings at the core of the 74 uh, Ethiopian revolution was both mobilized and trapped within social scientific analyses of society and by concepts and categories of change, um, terms such as transition, revolution, coup, cool, transfer of power, and passive revolution, which forestalled attention to the specificity and the novelty of the revolution. And, uh, and indeed, uh, I think much of what the second section theory as memoir tries to do is to think about uh, a mode of writing collectively about the post-colonial political subject, in some sense, given this earlier history that's charted in the first part of the book. Now, the revolution, though it was viewed as contingent, as singular, and new, was structured around ideas of return, recurrence, and repetition that challenge historicist modes of explanation. And the student movement, that uh, one among many transnational movements associated with new Marxisms, Not to mention exposure to Cold War social science. Uh, This social movement, this student movement, was part of uh, many uh, in that time, which points. Sontim argues both to the worldliness of the endeavor of the student radicals, but as well their globality. And I think one of the questions I'd like to hear a little bit more about is the emergence of youth and radical students as a distinctive political subject in this period and about post-48 Marxisms and the new vocabularies that they put in play. Because indeed, this is also the moment for another uh, um, kind of an, an epoch, if you will, or another moment in thinking about the history of the social sciences, the history practice, and the philosophy of the social sciences that Sontine is so in, interested in. Because indeed, it is in the aftermath of this that that uh, interesting collaboration and or distinction between uh, post-structuralism and post-colonial theory is both enabled, but also distinguished. Now, Sontim adopts a complex methodological approach, as we've heard, to the study of the 74 revolution as an event. So the question or the problem of the eventedness of this event is one that marks the entire text. And her uh, approach is to argue that the revolution exceeds any social historical accounting of the agonism between the student movement, which constituted the so-called civilian left, the Derg regime, if I'm saying that right, the Soviet-style military junta, which also ruled in the name of the people, and their combined rejection of the neo-imperial legacy of Haile Selassie. And of course, coming uh, and standing at the back of this is indeed the constitution uh, of the Abyssinian state, its relationship to various origin stories, um, Orthodox Christianity, but as well the place of Ethiopia for Pan-Africanism and Westafarianism. And so the kind of global, um, the ways in which it becomes a kind of place for um, a kind of redemptive project and in a certain kind of utopia in a slightly different mode. So what uh, I ask myself, as somebody who comes to this uh, uh, without having the kind of deep knowledge in uh, the study of either Ethiopia or other African societies, so when I ask myself reading this text, was the revolution? Did it occur when the civilian left challenged the Soviet military junta, itself marked as revolutionary, we should note? Does it occur after 1991, when the civilian left, the students who spoke through their journals, such as Challenge, Be Ready, Democracy, and who were themselves deeply engaged in the rural insurgencies at the edges of the Abyssinian state, or who sought political exile, returned to govern in Ethiopia that was now imagined as a federation of ethnicities, or to use the Soviet terminology that they struggled with, nationalities? with the land question being both primordial and primary for them, this problem of feudal modes of production and the modes of production debates and the transition debates that are happening in this period, too? Or is it the moment of passive revolution in the aftermath of the 2005 elections? That's marked by the creation of an urban land market, especially in Addis, and modes, new modes of speculation and finance capital. I suppose that is being enabled through, on the one hand, the claim that the people own the land and have a right to the land, but the ways in which that is euphemized and/or taken up by the state through various projects of urban renewal, um, in order to produce something like a private urban land market, or is it Santim's own longing? For this lost object of political utopia and radical promise. So where and when is the revolution, given this very complicated way in which the text is challenging history's historicism, but is also contesting sociological conceptions of the social. And so the question of time and temporality and the problem of social form um, are both issues for Ethiopian theory. And the text indeed asks us to think about the universalizing or the homogenizing impetus that lies at the core of disciplines themselves, predicated on the analysis of civilizational difference, particularity, and social complexity. And because a version of Marxism animated the thought and practice of revolution, the book is also a revolution, uh, a, a reflection. Excuse me, on the heteronymous histories of what Marxism was, what it became and perhaps what it can be. So I want to ask if there's a difference between the practice of social science that is of such deep concern for Santine and something that we might call a Marxist social science, one that focuses on land and national self-determination as the student movement did, or how do we think more broadly about Marxism as a form of thought and its instantiation, its complex paradoxical instantiation in communist states? And bureaucracy because I don't believe these are the one and the same. So Sontim's book draws quite significantly and this is where I'll turn to some of the South Asia work uh, that she engages with. Uh, the book itself engages quite significantly with the work of South Asian subaltern historians and post-colonial theorists. Partha Chatterjee and Dipesh Chakrabarty in one frame and in another the work of Jairus Banaji. Now, if we think about the subaltern historians uh, or the members of the Subaltern Studies Collective, uh, their experience of Marxism itself was associated with the CPM-ruled states of Kerala and West Bengal and inflected by debates between Maoism and Stalinism around the Naxal uprisings in eastern India where a petty bourgeois student elite found common cause with the rural peasantry that was also largely tribal or antivasi, somewhat reminiscent of the student movement and its involvement in the rural um, insurgencies. And as is well known, the subaltern studies collective challenged North Atlanticist paradigms of class formation. But in the process, the vexed relationship of capital and colonialism, which is of such great interest to Santime, was resolved, it could be argued, in favor of culture indifference, rather than inequality. And a focus on the pre-capitalist peasant subaltern as anthropological other, to social identities governed by colonial capital, produced or thrown up by it. So there was a focus, one could argue, on Hindu upper caste cultural nationalism, including in uh, the work that Santin draws upon, which is part of Chatterjee's work on the paradoxes of nationalist thought, the divide between the thematic and the problematic. And so I wonder how um, this body of literature with a kind of well-known, I suppose, now critique about the focus on difference rather than on inequality can be mobilized or is being mobilized on team and what um, kinds of openings you see, as well as other kinds of closures, which you discuss in the second half of the book. Now, as I said, the second half of the book is actually quite interested in thinking, it seems to me, about self-writing or the self-writing of a kind of collective post-colonial political subject, and this is where there is quite a deep engagement with questions of capital, colonial capitalism and indeed a return, if you will, to some of the grounding questions and conversations in post-colonial theory. And I just want to again mention what we might uh, uh, be able to think about and would like to think with team about um, some of the more recent literature um, in the vein of uh, both, you know, forms of self-critique, but also a kind of challenge to the way that Subaltern Studies itself had organized its relationship to Marxism, anti-colonialism and the question of sort of class formation and political subjectivity. So let me just mention a few. Today, there's a return to left histories, the relationship, for instance, between Khilafat and Marxism or other considerations in the South Asia space of communist heterotopia. Another way, um, and, and this is really pushing forward the argument for thinking about political thought and intellectual history, rather than a focus on subaltern resistance as such. So what's one do with this kind of intellectual history of a Marxism that could have been a certain kind of heterodox Marxism? And of course, we know that India is very present for Marx in his own writings on the East India Company, the 1857 mutiny, and so forth but also the um, signal debates between Roy and Lenin, and Roy and Lenin on the national and colonial question in the common term. And meanwhile, the compact or the compromise between Marxism and anti-colonialism, each as distinctive but connected forms of thought, was per- excuse me, was both perfectly possible even as it was euphemized in a slightly different time. So I think I want to kind of mark again the disjuncture between the moment of subaltern studies and a kind of earlier moment where we might begin to think about something like Eastern Marxism or a different kind of uh, possibility for Marxist thought itself. And and someone like Sanjay Seth has uh, has noted that in accepting anti-colonialism, Marxism, too, or Marxisms in the East, if you will, in a sense, elided the difference between national form and class substance. So that both in form and substance, nationalism was declared nationalist. Thus, he writes, anti-colonialism in this perspective was more than bourgeois democratic struggle. Indeed, socialism could be achieved through that form. So this is the coming together of that Marxist uh, Marxist and uh, anti-colonial moment. So thus, he argues, did Marxism itself become a form of nationalism, not in practice and due to constraint, but as theory, because it could not maintain the divide between form and substance? Kind of interesting way to return to the question of form and content, something that you began with. And of course, here, the problem of translating Marx, Marx when, Marx for whom, Marx why, and the possibilities of recovering a heterodox Marxism that's not circumscribed by the party form. Um, and this is why the, the, the moment of subaltern studies is so important. It's a kind of second iteration of that same struggle, it seems to me. But there's this earlier moment that Harry Hertunian draws on um, and and, uh, connects with others who refer to what we may think of as histories of Eastern Marxism. And that history is very complicated. In India, it's complicated by caste and by the Muslim question, and whether the former is viewed as an archaic remnant or paradigmatic of the social question, or both. And I think it introduces the question of particularism, heterogeneity, Historical violence and inequality that has embodied difference as such into the mix. It poses, it seems to me, the question of labor rather than the commodity form, which is the focus of the Frankfurt School of theorists, some of whom you draw on, some team. And so, I'm really interested in having you just speak a little bit more to this very complicated second um, part of the uh, of the book, theory as memoir. I think it's. Um, um, it's, it's um, re-engaging very profound debates about the very uh, categories of, uh, of you know, capitalism or you know, capitalism in the East, if you will. It's coming back to debates about the relationship between difference and inequality and the very constitution of the post-colonial subject as a certain kind of political subject in the long history one might say of the 20th century. And then of course, the question of the human in relationship to this political subject. So this is just to kind of think with you and and to speak to some of the openings that the text uh, makes possible. And especially because I think it's marking affinities, rarely done, sort of South-South affinities, if you will, um, really that are opening up ways to think analogy, historical comparison, affinity, and so forth between let's say even Africa and South Asia. And this is a kind of remarkable achievement of the book. Um, So again, I'm gonna end by congratulating you on on what you've done and how much this book opens up for new ways of thinking. Um, I think old questions.
2: Yeah, the book is a serious engagement with histories of capitalism and the ways in which I suppose subaltern studies has tried to think histories of capitalism. I think that one of my problems in the book was so I also say that part of the problem of thinking about the Ethiopian revolution and thinking Ethiopian politics is that I feel like African studies has not given me the tools to do that. Um, so perhaps I, I turn to subaltern studies to find those tools um, to think about the Ethiopian revolution. Um, and that's what the, the comparative nature of, of the book. However, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical about the ways in which An older Marxism that is being critiqued by subaltern studies is replaced by a kind of celebration of perhaps culture and difference. I think Anu you had mentioned um, the turn towards culture and difference within sort of post-colonial theory. The the last chapter of the book actually makes the argument that difference and the customary is actually um, produced by by capitalism itself, that, that, that capitalism is very interested in difference. It's the site, particularly in Africa, through which uh, capitalism is reproduced. Um, so that when we think of the, you know, the customary or the pre-colonial, um, what we're actually talking about is something that is very much produced by, by capitalism and colonialism. Um, so that is not a particularly productive place f- through which to launch a critique of capitalism or to be outside of capitalism. So and and there's a I guess there's a critique of Chakrabarti in that sense when he posits history two um, as something that cannot be sublated by history one and I think he sort of misreads Marx's understanding of use value there or make the argument that he misreads <laughs> Marx's uh, understanding of use value that Marx does have a theory of of histories that are not Sublated by by history one, but but are in certainly are in relation to history one, are and are also transformed by history one, right? But at the same time, I don't want to go that the the root of a kind of Marxism that just homogenizes all experiences that are that, that are outside of of the West. So I, I don't I don't posit. Ethiopia is simply in, a, in some sort of stage that is catching up with the West, right? And that if the customary and if difference is in fact, the site through which capitalism is reproduced, then it does raise actually interesting epistemological questions that a kind of older Marxism that wants to simply see uh, cultural difference as um, something that gets wiped out, can't really deal with, right? If, if I'm making sense there. Anu, I hope I'm making sense. (laughs) So, and then the question of, does does Marxism become a form of nationalism, you know, in the global south? I mean, I think it does in some weird way, right? Um, Which is why in Ethiopia, you can have um, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which is the the political party that um, ruled in Ethiopia from 1991 until uh, 2019, really using the the language of the nationalities question that comes from people like Lenin and Stalin and so on to answer these questions around how to integrate different groups into into some kind of political authority or into a a nation state project, right? So in Ethiopia, the the language of nationalism is used in such a way that every ethnic group in in Ethiopia is understood as a nation or a nationality um, in in potentia, right? So even if you're like, I suppose, you know, some smaller kind of tribal group, you are on your way to becoming a nation. And the constitution of Ethiopia is actually... Um, written the present constitution in the name of the nation's nationalities, na- nations, nationalities, and peoples of Ethiopia, which is this language that really comes from these very um, esoteric um, Marxist debates that I don't think anybody really reads anymore, but it's certainly the foundation of the Ethiopian constitution today, um, which is interesting, right? But there, there's an argument that Ethiopian Marxists made, which is that the class question can only be answered through the nationalities question in in Ethiopia.
1: Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Eleni Sentim Zaleka's book, Ethiopia in Theory. We hope you'll join us next time for more new book events from fall 2020. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy.
0: And I'm Olivia Branska. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.